Hello, everybody. This is Blaine DeSantis, and I welcome you to Books and Looks. Yes, our podcast about books and what I'm looking at for the past few weeks. And first of all, let me wish all of you and hope you all had a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, a Happy Holiday, a Happy Kwanzaa, Diwali. I can't name them all, folks, but hope you all had a Happy Holiday time. And now we're getting ready for the New Year's. And I thank you. Thank you, all my loyal listeners. And, and I hope you're liking the new cover art. You know, we've had a lot of people talk about that. And, you know, it's good. I'm enjoying it a lot. You know what you're getting. You're getting books and looks. And you got a cup of coffee. and You got glasses. What more can you want? I, I don't know. But, by the way, talk about big numbers from around the world. Yeah, I got to be honest with you. Yes, we're getting around 46% of our viewers right now, or listeners, I should say, are coming from America. But we've got big numbers from Germany, Spain, the United Kingdom, Romania, India. Yeah, they're coming in from all over the world, folks. It's utterly amazing, and I'm so gratified to all of you who are taking the time to listen to us, and, and please share it. Share our our podcast, because it's a podcast about books. It's about reading. It's not about politics or anything like that. It's just about good books and what I'm looking at in terms of TV or movie or things like that. So, hey, let's have a great time. Let's, let's dive right on in today, because we got a very special episode for you. We're going to begin with our first book that I'm going to review, actually the only book I'm going to review today, is called The Bookseller. The Bookseller by Peter Briscoe. Peter Briscoe, B-R-I-S-C-O-E. Now, Mr. Briscoe is a uh, librarian, and uh, he has written some marvelous short stories in the past, and this is a collection of little vignettes and a short story called The Bookseller. That's the name of the title. That's the name of the main story in here. And it is just great. Now, I know a lot of people don't like short stories, but these vignettes are only two or three pages long. The, the main short story is probably 50, 55 pages in length because the total book is only 75 pages. Only costs a few dollars. It is a wonderful book and is set down in Ecuador. And it's about books that have been stolen from a town library in Ecuador. And, of course, nobody knows this has happened. Because, as you know, if you go to a library, you check out a book. You know, people check out books. Do they bring them back? Do people secrete books <laughs> when they leave? I mean, it's a whole situation of how do you get books. And people have been stealing books from the library down there. And eventually they've turned up, they've been stolen and resold. Resold to universities, resold to other libraries, resold to private collectors. It is a wonderful look at that business, which is a true business. This is going on down there. But the bigger point in this book, friends, I mean the bigger point. And if you're listening to this, I know you're a reader, okay? I know you like to read. But the bigger point has been the demise of the libraries, the demise of readers, because people don't read like they used to read. Remember, back in the days before TV, before radio, between everything else, the internet, blah, 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 what did you do? Most people read. But nowadays, reading is not the same, and the same problem is happening with libraries. 
libraries are not being used as much because people are either buying books or getting them digitally online. And so the author, through his characters, makes a very, very important point as to the demise of the library. Because when you would go to a library, you would go and you would look through the stacks. Yeah, because you go to the card catalog, you won't really find anything of that you really you might find interesting. But if you walk through the stacks, you might find a book and you might start reading it. And this is what happens. Now, with everything being done digitally, who browses? There's no browsing anymore. You want a book? This is what I'm going to get. And you don't get anything else. You lose that that personal connection with a library. And you're losing a connection with books. We are. We're losing the connection with books because people no longer want to read books. Our social media, our digital world is giving us sound bites, is giving us snippets, is giving us something we can take care of in two minutes. And if it's not in two minutes, we don't want to read that. And that's a problem. You and I don't have that problem, but many people do. As I've told many people, as you all probably know, I have a I have a personal library of around 5,000 actual physical copies of books. But I've got almost 3,500 3, books on my Kindle app. Why? Well, because I have a hard time holding the books. I have peripheral neuropathy and getting older, as I said on my uh, blogs and everything, it's getting harder to read. And so I find reading on the Kindle is easier for me than actually my physical books. But I'm a firm believer that we all need to be reading books and not just skimming them or anything else. Let's sit down and read the books. And this gentleman says it better than me. It's a wonderful book. And I'm going to tell you what, I have been in contact with uh, Mr. Briscoe and Mr. Briscoe, uh, Peter Briscoe has agreed to come on to uh, Books and Looks and going to give us an interview. As a matter of fact, we're going to have a special edition podcast, which is just going to deal with Mr. Briscoe, his life, his career as a librarian. Well, here's one of the most fascinating things about this gentleman. He has arranged for over 1.5 million books to be donated to libraries. Imagine that, one and a half million books to be donated to libraries. It's out of this world. So anyway, He's going to be coming on in probably a few weeks, and we're going to have his. Uh, we're going to have his interview. That's all we're going to have that day. We're just going to be talking to Mister Briscoe. A special episode. I think you're going to really, really like that. But now, yeah, we've got our first author interview. That's right. We now are going to bring you an interview which I taped with John Constable. Now, John Constable has written a book which I think is very, very good. It's called The Shantus from Cape Town. The Shantus from Cape Town. A very good book. John Constable, a wonderful gentleman to get to know and a good writer. And again, another one of these writers that many of us don't hear about. And if you read my blog, uh, I talk about that. There are lots of writers out there we do not know. So without further ado, let's go to that interview with John Constable. John, welcome to uh, Books and Looks. Yeah, no, thank you. And thank you very much for talking to me this afternoon. Well, you know, John, before we get into the book itself, I, I, just a couple background questions for you, if I, if I can. Uh, where are you, first of all, where are you at right now? You're in England? 
Uh, yes, I live uh, in Surrey, which is a county on the south side of London. Uh, have you always lived there, or do you uh, come from somewhere else in England? No, no, I was actually born in a place called Epsom, which is also in Surrey, so I haven't really gone very far away from my roots. Um, Epsom, yeah. isn't so, there uh, a big derby there, uh, the horses? Uh, there is, yep, yep. No, that takes <laughs> place still every every year, so, yeah. Okay, yep. good, good, wonderful. Well, I'll, uh, see, before we get into the book, a little bit on the uh, your background is your education, uh, what jobs you had, and what got you into writing? Uh, well, it's a fairly conventional background. Um, I left school. I did some training in accountancy for two or three years. Um, I left that and went into voluntary work for a couple of years. Worked for a period of time in local government and then wanted really a new entrepreneurial challenge. So I moved into recruitment and I worked for somebody else for about five years. And then I set up my own business um, and spool forward 20 years. I retired formally from that uh, 10, 15 years back and I've done some other things in between. As far as the writing is concerned, that really started very early. Um, I, I actually wrote a book in my late teens. Um, I don't quite know where the impetus came from, but it's something that um, I've pursued intermittently over the succeeding decades, um, of which there have been far too many, I think. Um, but... Um, uh, yeah, it's it, it's something that um, I got back into with some more focus uh, about five or six years ago. So the, the the book that you're seeing now was essentially completed about, uh, as I say, five or six years back. Um, and I've then gone on the journey in terms of trying to um, achieve publication. And I'm delighted now that, you know, there is a a paperback available. It's something which I, I always prefer to read books that, you know, you've got in your hands rather than read stuff on screen. Uh-huh. Wow. It took almost five years to find a publisher. I can't believe that because this book is well, just uh, dramatically it, good. It, well, this is, uh, this is self-published. So uh, the journey, as always, I think with most people is that you try to find an agent and then from there, hopefully the agent finds you a publisher. Uh, I've had one or two near misses on that front, but it's incredibly difficult these days to get an agent to take you take you on. So you then start to look at alternatives, and self-publishing has come on a very long way, I think, in the last um, few years. Uh, and a lot of authors now prefer to self-publish because there is, in fact, actually more money, I think, to be made out of self-publishing than going the route in terms of, you know, finding a big backer who hopefully will put some money behind your, uh, you know, debut debut novel. So that's the journey, and that's what I'm committed to now, I think, going forward, unless somebody comes to me and says, well, you know, we could do X, Y, Z for you, but um, we'll see. This is, a, this is a marathon, isn't it? It's not a sprint unless you get incredibly lucky. I think you just have to stick with it and, you know, keep ploughing away. Um, and hopefully things improve and change. Yeah. Now, that's, uh, that's, that's fascinating because it's, it's interesting in the fact that 
I think I'm getting more and more books that are being uh, sent to me that are self-published, and I'm finding the the work tremendous. I mean, I just love the uh, the writers out there who I'm discovering who should have major imprint labels publishing their works, and you're one of those. Well, you know, as I say, it is very, very difficult, and I, I think like any activity within creative media, it's um, extraordinarily competitive. And, uh, yeah, as I say, I, I think you get to a point of thinking, okay, well, perhaps I need to take more responsibility for this and get on with it, and um, we, we'll see where we we'll, we'll see where we go. Good for you. Now, do you have any influences in writing or any favorite authors that you uh, enjoyed that got you into this genre of writing? Um, I'm not sure. So particularly, I was thinking particularly about this question when um, you you posed it. And I, I guess where it started from going way back and we're talking sort of 50 years um, I was very impressed with um, Frederick Forsyth's Day of the Jackal. I don't know whether you, it, it, whether you've read the book or you've seen the film, um, but Both. if you've done neither, you're right. Okay, okay. And I just thought, well, maybe I'll try and emulate that, and um, you know, I'll launch this spectacular career. But you know, of course, uh, in the way of these things, at the end of the day, it doesn't pan out necessarily like that. I, I used to read uh, a great deal when I was when I was young. I still read. I have favourite authors. Um, yeah, Raymond Chandler is a is a big influence because of his style of writing. Uh, Graham Greene, um, Sue Grafton's Alphabet series, um, and a standard which I come back to and I do repeat repeat uh, which I do read repeatedly. Uh, John Buchan's 39 Steps. Have you read that? Are you familiar with that? Absolutely. I'm a big fan of his. Yeah. 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 No, that, that's a fantastic book. And as you know, you can read that from start to finish in a couple of hours. But I always take um, take new things away from away from that. I'm so happy you mentioned John Buchan. I, I don't think many people have read his works over here, but I, I, I love them. And, and, and then the thing is, Everybody thinks that Hitchcock's movie was based upon his book, and it may have had some loose to it, but nothing at all like the book. No, there have been, I think, three film versions, um, and none of them actually follows the book um, completely, certainly as far as the denouement is concerned at the, uh, at the end. But, um, yeah, no, that, that's a real standard, and I don't think it's ever gone out of print. I mean, it was published in 1915. It's like, it's like I have this love for uh, uh, Eric Ambler, who Le Carre considers the, the godfather of that genre, you know. Yeah, I, I have a first edition of The Mask of Demetrius, um, Unfortunately, without the jacket, because with the jacket, that increases the value of it um, exponentially. Um, but yeah, no, that's a wonderful book, and I've read that three, four times. Real classics. Well, we're pulling some names out of the, out of the, the recesses of our minds here. That's wonderful. Well, and let's talk a little bit about uh, Saul Nemo. How did you... You know, come up with Saul, the name, the idea. Where did this all come from? Uh, well, I, I think with me, it's a, it's a process of percolation. You know, I, you sort of, you get something. 
in your mind. It, it's a grain of sand and you start to build on that. And that's the way the process, um, uh, the process starts um, and is continued. And that was what I, what I did. Um, and I wanted to create uh, a character that was different um, because there is so much, I think, of uh, a sort of sameness about a lot of a lot of characters. So I I was looking to try to uh, break the mold a bit, um, and you know, setting the work in South Africa also is another another part of this dimension i think so you've got this character who's you know sort of really a bit conflicted uh, between two uh different uh, different cultures um and he stands awkwardly between them uh, between the two of them and he's got this you know these these sort of mental health issues as well which makes him more vulnerable um, so it, it was really just trying to put all that together, but it, it's not something where you sort of sit down with a blank piece of paper or, you know, just be far up the, uh, the laptop and think, okay, well, look, I'll make some notes about this guy. It percolates over a period of, uh, of time. And that's, that's the way it, uh, has, has happened. I, I love it. The very first communication we had, I think was through your publicist when we, I asked Saul, was he mixed race? Because I got from the very beginning, I can't remember the, I can't pronounce the name of the gentleman who was like the financier, Dutois or something like that. Uh, Detroit. Uh, Detroit. Yeah, okay. Detroit. Yes. Yeah, and yes. You, you yeah. could just tell when he walked in that Detroit was dismissive of him. And I thought, there's something here. Now, you picked mixed race, and I never even considered an Indian mother. That was fantastic. Are there a lot of Indians in South Africa? Well, I, I had to I'd look back on this um, this morning, in fact. I just wanted to refresh my, my memory. There were a lot of uh, Indians who came over at the end of the 18th, uh, beginning of 19th century uh, and were brought over by the British, uh, essentially, to provide labour. Uh, and many of those, uh, and there is still a very strong community, settled in in Durban. Uh, in addition to that, you've also got the uh, Cape Malay population, and they tended to settle towards uh, the, the Western Cape and Cape Town. So what I envisaged here was that uh, Sol Nemo's uh, mother um, is, is actually of Indian stock from, from Durban, and her father sorry, his father, has has these roots which date back to the Dutch founding fathers. So, you know, I mean, he's he's very privileged um, and obviously became very, very wealthy. Um, so, again, that's a, that's a contrast. You had mentioned uh, to me that uh, you're actually leaving to go back down to South Africa in a few weeks. Why, why is that? Um, well, my wife who is South African, has a son and daughter-in-law and two grandchildren who, who live there. So we try to get down every every year uh, and we'll be going for a couple of months and it's an opportunity to soak up some sunshine and probably a fair amount of beer uh, as well and, uh, and escape our diabolical winters in the UK, which are long and dreary uh, 
Will you get a little research in for future Sol Nemo books? Uh, just try to keep my eyes open while I'm down there. But you know yourself, I mean, you know, the Internet these days is a wonderful resource. I mean, you know, you come across something and you just think, ah, you know, I'll just do a Google search and see what I can turn up. I make quite a lot of, uh, a lot of use of Wikipedia, which, I mean, is fantastic. Um, and I've got, you know, I've lived long enough and I think I've hopefully got enough imagination to be able to think, well, OK, so I can sort of research this on online and I can then get a feel um, for what it would be like to be in that sort of situation. So that seems to work quite well for me. And the, the feedback I get from people is, well, yeah, you know, that that's how it is, um, you know, so th- that's what I work on. Good. Good. One thing I've always, when I was reading this book, is you made Saul Nemo a real person because he has some uh, issues and he's trying to work through those. And he eats. I mean, the guy eats. You actually have eating scenes in the book, which I love. And uh, most writers don't make to do that. I, I haven't counted up um, how many. Uh, perhaps I should have checked for this I, I i think there were a couple of occasions but i i can't um there were around five or six times he went somewhere to eat and i didn't know if these were legitimate restaurants or whatever but i loved it that uh, no 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 i did there's, I, there's a mention in the book i think of mug and mug and bean and that is a south african brand um you know they do uh that's a sort of coffee shop uh operation and they do some uh, some meals and so on as well so it's, some of it's real and some of it um, isn't. Uh, well, you, would, yeah, you wouldn't know you would. it because it all sounds real to me. It reads real, and it makes Saul It makes Saul a real character to me. You make him do real things. It's just not like running from one thing to another to another to another. You, you actually put in a, a time period by this. You know where he's at, uh, and uh, you know this all doesn't take place in two days. And I, I, I absolutely love that. Uh, I loved it, John. Tremendous stuff. Well, this is this is this is one of the techniques I think in terms of the of the writing because I do create a, a very short synopsis for each scene that I write, but I'm also tracking uh, the days that pass uh, between you know the the onset of inv- of an investigation and then how it plays out because I, I think you. You need to have some idea of the timeline that you're addressing. And, of course, the other thing about it is that if you write 100, 200 pages and then you're suddenly thinking, well, you know, there was this scene way back, but I can't really remember quite where it was. And you have to spend a lot of time, you know, fiddling about trying to trying to find things, which is not very good. So I, I, I do that um, on an ongoing basis as, as I write. I mean, the book that you're looking at at the moment is... Uh, 50, 55 scenes um, covering a period of, you know, several, several weeks. But that's a good, that's a good ready reckoner. Yeah. Great. Wow. That's, that's very good. Now, the book we're talking about, The Chanteuse from Cape Town, just a very quick synopsis for the listeners out there. What's this book all about? Um, well, it, it introduces my main character, obviously, um, Essentially, the onset is that uh, he is approached and advised that uh, a lady by the name of Myra uh, or Mira 
who is the wife of the man who's been like a father to Sol, um, has been kidnapped. Um, and that's really the starting point. And from there, there's an attempt at an exchange which goes disastrously wrong and Sol gets shot. And then subsequently, uh, his investigation um, leads to a, a rescue attempt, uh, and that fails. After that, as the inquiries move along, Sol's investigations take him inevitably to, to Cape Town, where Myra uh, used to sing uh, five or six years ago at uh, at a nightclub, and the and the plot goes goes uh-huh. from there. I, I, I don't want to. Tell no, you no. too much. Um, no, no. I'd like to encourage people to uh, uh, d- to read, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's essentially the action moves between Port Elizabeth and uh, and Cape Town, and yeah, that's what I what I like about this book is it is what I consider an action book, but without all the necessary guns ablazing that I get when I read maybe a book by Steve Barry or others out there who just you know start blowing things up from day one and. Uh, it's just like uh, nothing. It's not. It's not believable. And I, I think it needs to be nuanced. Um, you know, you've always got sort of peaks and peaks and troughs. Yeah, very well done. There's only I tell all my listeners out here: if you and when you read this book, there is one scene that looks like it's coming right out of the movie Scarface. When um, we have uh, those, what are what were what were those weapons? Were those bazookas or what were those things? Uh, no, these are rocket prote- uh, rocket pro- propelled grenades. Yeah, yeah. All I'm thinking, John, is say hello to my little friend. You know, because <laughs> this guy he blows up everything. <laughs> it's wild. That's the that's the only real I thought the massive destruction scene in there, and it was perfectly done, perfectly placed, and, and I I loved the whole thing. You did a great job. You know. Now, let's ask a little bit about uh, Saul. Is Saul Nemo going to be uh, coming back again? Yeah, there is actually, you know, whilst this this book that you, you've got was written five, six years ago, there is a, a second book which is completed, um, which is called The, the Truth About Anton Van Zaal. Um, and I'm hoping to publish that uh, perhaps um, late summer next year. Um, just need to see, I think, how it all fits together in terms of um, logistics and, and time and so on. I mean, apart from anything else, there's a there's a whole new book cover uh, which will need to be designed, and that can be a bit of a bit of a process. And I'm currently working on uh, a third book, um, which I think is about three quarters of the way through, uh, and that's called The Lost Sister. So you're you're we we can look forward to more of the Sal Nemo mysteries. I like uh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I'm not quite sure what I do after I finish the the third uh, Sal Nemo book. I've got something else in mind that um, I might like to to tackle as a you know sort of standalone project. But we'll we'll see how we we'll see how we go. It's yeah. That's okay. You know, that's wonderful. And that's the part of the whole creative process. You One thing spawns something else, and, uh, and no, no trouble there at all. That's great. Now, hey, a little question. Uh, COVID, how has that affected you as a writer, uh, and has it disrupted anything? Uh, no, not particularly, to be quite honest with you. I, I do, in fact, a lot of um, voluntary work, and 
all that's happened during COVID is that uh, I was working remotely from from here. Um, but then, you know, I, I work essentially on my own anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously been very frustrating from a social standpoint because we went through these lockdowns and uh, we've had all sorts of stuff, just as you have had in the States. Uh, but it's not impacted me too much because, you know, as I say, a lot of the work I do is sat behind a computer. Um, I can email people. I can talk to them on the phone. Um, not really a problem. Uh, good. Yeah. Good. I, I, th- I thought I was in the clear. And then uh, around the 4th of July this year, my wife got COVID. And then two days later, I got COVID. So I was laid up uh, for around... 10 days with the doggone thing and I, I didn't feel lousy but I just you felt lethargic I was coughing a lot it just throws off your whole schedule so yeah uh, yeah no it does I, I I in fact got COVID in South Africa um when we were last there so we pitched up in uh, mid-December and I got COVID at the beginning of January but I mean the symptoms were very very mild it's just this um you know, it's just this isolation thing so that you don't pass it to other people. And that's really, uh, really tedious. Um, yeah. Let me ask a little bit about your, your writing schedule. Uh, I ask everybody this. Do you have a, a set time and pattern or do you write as the spirit moves you? No, I, I, my view about this is that you have to write. Uh, you've got to have some discipline about it because I think if you work on the basis that... Uh, you know, you'll just do it when the when the muse hits you. That's not really a recipe for getting anything very much uh, achieved. So, what's been happening certainly over recent times is that uh, I tend to do most of my writing at uh, at weekends. I don't work very quickly um, because I'm a perfectionist by nature. So, if I put something down on paper. Uh, I tend to be, you know, trying to to sort that out and getting it right before I I move on. Uh, there are two very different schools of thought about this, and and the one I think which often prevails is this feeling, you know, that you've got an idea and a plot sort of vaguely in your mind, and you just start writing reams and reams and reams of stuff, which you then go back and edit. I, I can't work like that. Um, it's a very much more um, considered process, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and yeah, even working like that, I mean, you don't get it right all the time. Obviously, my starting point each week when I try to get some uh, some fresh words down is to look at what I've written the previous week and I go through a process of editing and gradually, you know, you sort of sink back into it and um, hopefully you then move forward and you've got some more words at the end of the weekend than, uh, than you had when you started. Uh, but Every writer works in different ways, as I'm sure you, I'm sure you know. And yeah, there have been some very quick uh, people. I mean, you're very, are you familiar with uh, Georges uh, Simenon and um, Maigret, uh, the French, um, uh, the French detective? And, no, I don't uh, think I am. No, no Georges Simenon uh, wrote an enormous number of books, and he would sit down and write a book in two or three days, uh, literally. I mean, they're very spare in terms of style um, and they're entirely plot uh, rather than character, character-driven. character But, um, yeah. How, how long are the books? A couple hundred pages? Uh, yeah. Um, it's a long time since I've read one. I mean, they're, yeah, they would lean on the side of 
brevity, I think, probably a couple of hundred pages. But, I mean, he was enormously uh, prolific. Um, so that's another one you might look into. Yeah, uh, I will. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah. Try a May Gray and see how you how you get on with it. Wow, that's interesting. So, but, but before you start writing, you have a, an idea where your characters and where your scenes are all going, I'm assuming. <laughs> it's not mapped. Uh, I mean, from the way in which I work, it would actually be better if I could sit down and just sort out a whole book from start to finish. But I tend to have a starting point, um, and I've probably got that sort of firmly fixed, and I know where I'm going to go. And I've got some idea how it might end up. And then there's all this stuff in the middle, um, which takes a lot of sorting out and evolves gradually over uh, over a period of time. Well, I'll tell you what, I thought you did a wonderful job with this book. And uh, I, I really, really have uh, been impressed with this. I've been telling everybody about this. And we're recording this uh uh, this interview before John leaves for South Africa, because I'm trying to get it scheduled uh, that when you hear this, everybody out there, it's going to come out right before his book hits here in America. And you can run out and buy his book uh, on Amazon and uh, get it and, you know, be be as excited and thrilled about this author as I am, because, uh, John, you did a great job. Uh, that's very, very kind of you. Uh, I, I'm very gratified. I mean, you know, as I think I said in one of the emails that we exchanged, Blaine, uh, writing inevitably is a is a lonely business. I mean, you know, you just sort of sit here behind a computer and the world goes on all around you and you're not quite sure what sort of reaction anything you produce is going to uh, going to have. So that's very gratifying. But the, the operative date is the 19th of January. Uh, that's the launch for the e-book and the, uh, and the paperback. You will. Your interview will be starting the new year with us, and uh, you'll be in South Africa when it comes out. But I'll get you a link for that, and you can listen to to you and me chat once again. And I, again, I don't want to take any more time, but I just want to say, John, thank you so very much for coming on. Thank you for writing this book. That Sal Nemo, great character. I look forward to reading all the rest of your works, and I hope you have a happy holiday and a happy vacation. I extend the same good wishes to you, and uh, I hope you have a very happy new year. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mr. Constable, John Constable. He's on his way now down to uh, South America. So have a great vacation, and uh, we look forward to the next book in that Saul Nemo series. Anyway, before I get into my looks portion today, I just want to again remind you of the website, the blog and that I have. It's called viewsonbooks.com. And you can go there and you can read many more book reviews that I have done, author interviews that we have for just specifically for the website. And I think you're going to really enjoy it. It's viewsonbooks.com. I also want to talk about the Greenville Podcast Company, our sponsor, with my chief cook and bottle washer, my son, my producer, Nathaniel DeSantis, doing great things. And again, as I said before, if you're interested in having a podcast and Nathaniel can produce it for you, or if you're interested in just listening to what he's done. It's good stuff. You can go to the website, and it's really, really, really great. You know, you can be a a podcaster also. It's not that hard. It really isn't. And with Nathaniel behind you, I'm telling you, it's going to be really a a fun experience for each and every one of us. So the Greenville Podcast Company, where you want to go for all your podcast needs. And now we go to the looks portion of the podcast. 
as I said, we have just passed the holiday season. So I want to ask all of you, have you watched Christmas movies this year? Have you watched Christmas movies? Okay, now there, there are three categories, I think, that you have. Some people love to watch the old, the classics, you know, The Miracle of 42nd Street and all the other ones. Oh, you want to, if you watch those, or, or are you one who likes those Hallmark and, and GAC movies, which are nothing more than cozy mysteries, okay? And not for me, but for many people, they love those little stories. They're heartwarming. They all, you know, end up pretty good for everybody, but they're a very huge portion. When I go onto my uh, Sling account uh, and I open it up, I mean, I see the amount of Christmas movies out there. It's unbelievable how many Christmas movies there are. Or do you like some of the newer classics, like the uh, Christmas Story, the National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, uh, Home Alone? Every category that I basically talked about, I didn't watch. Nope, I watched two movies this Christmas. Two. That's it. And some people debate whether this is a Christmas movie, but I consider it to be partly Christmas, so that's why I watched it. And that is Meet Me in St. Louis. Oh, my God. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis. Meet me at the fair. Oh, what a wonderful song. What a wonderful movie. A musical by MGM. Just an outstanding musical that is, I'm going to tell you why, it all wraps around the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. And it's filled with seasonal vignettes from around, a, I think, beginning in the summer of 1903. And you go by season by season, what's going on with the family, and uh, until the opening of the fair in 1904. Now, this movie, in case you didn't know it, this was the second highest grossing movie for 1944. And of all the MGM musicals in the 1940s, and there were a ton of them, this was the number one movie. What, what makes this uh, important is not only do we have the World's Fair, but we also have the internal debate of the father wanting to move from St. Louis to New York City to further his legal career. Well, the family's not too excited about that because they think nothing's better than St. Louis. And so we've got that going on. We've got Young Love featuring all, featuring all the girls in the family. And we've got the songs. Like I said, we've got Meet Me in St. Louis, which was done specifically just for this show. Another song written just for this uh, movie, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Judy Garland sang it for the first time ever on this movie. So that's there. And then there is my favorite, yes, the trolley song. Do you remember the trolley song? Oh, my God. Clang, 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 went the trolley. Ding, 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 went the bell. Zing, 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 went my heartstrings. From the moment I saw him, I fell. Okay. Not Judy Garland, folks, but it's my impersonation on that song. And I tell you what, it is a wonderful song. It's a simpler time. It's it's a lot of fun. And I tell you what, you cannot you cannot get better to me than than Meet Me in St. Louis. It's got Judy Garland. It's got Margaret O'Brien, who's the last living cast member uh, from that uh, movie. Mary Astor is the mother. We got Marjorie Maine, one of my favorite actresses, Marjorie Maine. She was in Ma and Paul Kettle. <laughs> now, you're going back to the old days there, but I love Ma and Paul Kettle's movies, and she was Ma Kettle. She's been in many, many uh, movies, and when you see her, you know exactly who I'm talking about. So it's very wonderful. There are many familiar supporting faces in this movie, and it, it was just a wonderful time. And from there, I go to my second look, 
which was the movie Love Finds Andy Hardy. Now, have you ever watched the Andy Hardy movies? They allege they're 18 movies. I don't know if I'm sure they're 18, but they're at least a good 10 in the, that are what well, I consider the classics. And this is the first of the signature ones that has the word Andy Hardy in it. Now, Mickey Rooney at the, to this time, this was done in 1938. So Mickey Rooney was around 18 years old. And this was a wonderful performance as the love-struck Andy Hardy, who has all sorts of problems because he wants to go to the Christmas dance and his girlfriend is leaving. But that's not the only problem. He gets a new person visiting next door. And that girl sort of steals his heart away, too. That girl, Judy Garland. Oh, yeah, Judy's in this one also. She was 16 at the time of this uh, filming. And matter of fact, this was before she did The Wizard of Oz. So this is almost like her major coming out film here. She sang a couple songs made for this show. We also have the introduction of Lana Turner. This is her first major role also. So she's in this. And we got characters and character actors that you've seen all over in all these older 1940s, 50s, black and white movies. They're all there. It's fun. Andy Hardy schemes his way into getting a used car for $20. And it's a simple time. It's a simple time. That's all people want to have that and go back to look at that. Because by the end of the movie, Andy Hardy has three dates for the big Christmas dance. And how's he going to juggle all those problems? I'll tell you. It's, It's simple. It's pleasurable. It was just a lot of fun. And those were my two things I was looking at. I'm looking at Meet Me in St. Louis, and I'm looking at Love Finds Andy Hardy. I can't think of a better way for me to spend the Christmas holiday season. So with that, I'm going to say goodbye for now. We'll be back in a few weeks again. We have a lot of author interviews lined up. We have a lot of people who want to come in and uh, do an interview for you on the podcast. Uh, We even have a a lady coming in from uh, Ocean View Publishing, who's just a public relations lady to talk about her job. So between authors, readers, like our good friend Donna Van Norden, who, you know, I thought Donna did a great job last episode. I'm very happy she would come on and be our first guest. And again, that's what we want to have, real readers. Because these are great books we're talking about for real readers, okay? On behalf of the Greenville Podcast Company, on behalf of viewsandbooks.com, This is Blaine DeSantis saying so long from Books and Looks.